every uh, once in a while I'll pick up the newspapers. I think they have it on Saturday. It's about the only time I look at it. And you open up that one section and it's on automobiles. And they'll show up in the top of right-hand corner. They'll show the latest model car that's come out. And uh, the first thing I check on it is the price. And I'm just appalled at the prices on these new automobiles coming out. Now, maybe they're just showing the, France, the fancy models that, uh, that people will, will uh, like to buy. Uh, some people like to buy. But uh, I look at them, you know, they're $35,000, $40,000. Now, who's going to go out? How many of the normal, common person people are going to go out and buy a thirty dollars or $40,000 car? And yet they sell. Now, passing that up, I went to the Newsmax, uh, no, I went to the CNN the other day, I believe it was, or Fox, whichever one it was. They were showing the latest model of the Rolls Royce. I don't know if any of you saw that. It uh, sells for a third of a million dollars. 330, well, let's say $333,000. Now, who's got money to pay that kind of price for a car? And yet there are people... They just uh, long to have those things, and they, they, just, they just long for that status. I remember years ago, when I was in the military, we used to take a troop train from one end of the country to the other, and of course, if you've ever ridden on a railroad, you go through the, the, the sort of the lower uh, economic brackets of town, and uh, you'd, you'd hit the outskirts there where this, these uh, slum areas were located, and you'd see these shacks, these run-down shambles shacks, no paint, roofs about half caved in, and they'd have two things sitting in front, they'd have two things. They'd have a big fancy TV antenna, and they'd have a Cadillac sitting in front. People are just obsessed with these things. Well, today I'm going to talk about this obsession that affects so many people, and I'm going to discuss it out of the 73rd Psalm. Let's go to the 73rd Psalm. One of the most uh, inspirational psalms ever written. It really tells the story, tells the truth accurately. This is the psalm of Asaph. Now, who was Asaph? Well, he wrote 12 psalms. So 12 of the psalms are attributed to him. Now, these psalms would not be there unless they were regarded as inspired. And was this man inspired? Well, let's notice what we read in Second Chronicles 29. Second Chronicles 29, and uh, we can pick it up here in verse number 30. Moreover, King Hezekiah and all leaders commanded the Levites to sing praise to the Lord with the words of David and of Asaph the seer. Now, what was a seer? A seer was the early term for a prophet. So this man was a prophet, as was David. And so those psalms are inspired and they're included in God's word because they are a part of the inspired record that God had preserved. Now Asaph himself came from the Levitical line. Notice uh, he was a descendant of uh, Gershom. Notice in Exodus 6, verse number 16. I'm giving you just a little background here. Exodus 6, 16. And we read here, these are the names of the sons of Levi according to their generations, Gershon, Kohath, and Merari. Asaph was a descendant of Gershon. He was of the Levitical line. Now, I'm not going to turn to these particular texts here. If you cared, you can jot them down, and if you want to check them out, you'll see the correlation that he was a direct descendant of uh, 
of Levi through the uh, Gershon line, 1 Chronicles 6.39 and 1 Chronicles 15.17. Now let's notice what he says here. This is a psalm of Asaph. Truly, God is good to Israel. That is, to whom? To such as are pure in heart. Now, what if one is not pure in heart? Is God good? Not necessarily. Such a person is certainly not going to be blessed. Now, there's an interesting statement over here in the book of Lamentations. Let's go to Lamentations, the third chapter, and verse number 25, and we read this statement. The Lord is good to those who wait for him. Now, when we start looking at all these uh, lusts that uh, seem to control people and the desires that people have and people who are constantly going into debt and people who are striving to get ahead financially, this is our, these, we're looking at people who do not wait for the Lord. Now, maybe in some cases, they can't afford to wait. That's, uh, you know, that's a, a situation that's to be evaluated on its own. But uh, I'll tell you, the constant problem that people have is distinguishing the difference between their wants and their needs. And uh, a good example of the pure in heart, you'll remember when, uh, I think it was Nathaniel approached Jesus, and Jesus said to him, Behold, an Israelite in whom there is no guile. Absolutely honest. He was a man who was uh, pure in heart. So those, it says here, and I mean, when we're talking about men, we're certainly including women too. Anyone who's pure in heart, God is good to. But now notice what took place there. But for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. Why? He got into a frame of mind and an attitude here that uh, was taking him in the wrong direction and making him think the wrong things. For I was envious of the boastful when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Now, the biggest problem that people have, uh, we used to hear this all the time when we were teenagers, you know, most young teenagers are just obsessed with the latest, latest, latest model cars. And, uh, boy, they just want this car and they want that car. And I used to have friends would stand by me and they'd say, see that car? I wish I had that one and he had something better. Just desirous and lustful all the time because they want this and they envy people who have prosperity. As though that is the real standard. Now, what was his problem here? What was really taking place in the mind of this writer here, this inspired, this inspired seer? He was placing prosperity or financial success ahead of God's favor. Now, if you had to take the two, what would be the wisest one to take? Financial prosperity or God's favor? Now, what happened here? I was envious of the boastful. And I'm reading this, of course, from the New King James Version, which uh, in many, many cases, probably the majority of the cases, will and render the actual Hebrew or Greek more accurate even than what the King James does. Now, does that mean that I think the New King James Version is uh, not, that is the King James Version is not to be used? I use it all the time. 
I use it as my fundamental Bible I work with. But when I speak, I speak out of this New King James because it's a lot easier to read and a lot easier to, to follow. So the word boastful is correct here. It simply means insolent or haughty boasters. Now, how often have you seen people who are very successful financially act like they own the world? Very arrogant and uh, completely stuck on themselves as though they have all power and authority and they do anything they want. Can they do anything they want? In most cases, unfortunately, yes. Jerry Spence said one time when, we, when he was talking about the justice system in the United States, he summed it up by saying, little justice for little people. What that meant was that if you're a little person and you don't have much money to hire these high-powered fancy lawyers that will figure out some way to get you off the hook, you will pay. And that's just the way the system works. Now notice what he was concluding when he was looking at them and comparing, let's say, himself or the, the average person with these successful people. There are no pangs or pains in their, to, their, to their death. That is, they don't suffer when, they, when it comes to their to time, for their time to die. But their strength is firm. That is, they have, they have power and strength to the time they die. They are not in trouble as other men. And that's the way it appears on the surface, doesn't it? We see these people who are famous movie stars or they're popular and famous in this world in some accord, some manner, and uh, we think, oh, they just have a wonderful life. These people, I can tell you, they have some of the most miserable lives you can imagine. They're unhappy. They're on drugs. They're sex addicts. They uh, use dope. They use, uh, they, they're, they're heavy cigarette smokers. And they are just obsessed with just various uh, problems of all kinds. So don't presume for one moment that what you see on the outside is really the truth. It may be completely superficial, and it isn't going to pay off in the end. Their strength is firm. They are not in trouble as other men. That is, they don't appear to be. Notice Hosea 4, verse 14. And we'll, have a, we'll be turning to a few references here, occasionally here. You know, uh, they don't seem to be in trouble. In other words, they do not uh, seem to have to suffer the consequences of the righteous. They don't seem to have to go into the trials and tribulations of the righteous. What does the Bible say about the righteous? Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. It is by much tribulation that we enter the kingdom of God. So you see, those people who are not within that realm of God's children or God's people seem appear to have no problems or troubles. Now, there's an interesting text here in Hosea, the fourth, uh, the fourth chapter, in verse 14. Notice what God says. He's declaring hands off of these sinners. He's not directly intervening and chastising them now. And here's what he says. I will not punish your daughters when they commit harlotry, nor your brides when they commit adultery. For the men themselves go apart with harlots and offer sacrifices with a ritual harlot. Therefore, people who do not understand will be trampled. They're going to suffer the consequences of their way of life. 
Now, why does God allow them to get away with it and his children not to? Well, let's go to Hosea. I mean, let's go to Hebrews, the 12th chapter. We'll see the answer very clearly here. Hebrews 12, verse number 6. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. That's right. God is working and disciplining and training his children. And they're the ones that get chastised. The world, he just let, let letting them go and suffer the consequences. Because I can tell you this, when you break God's laws, whether they're physical or spiritual, there is an invisible law set in motion and you will automatically pay the penalty. Nor are they plagued like other men, as we read back here in Psalm 73, verse 5. Therefore, pride compasses them as a necklace. That is, it hangs around their neck just like a necklace. They're proud. They're, they're, they're proud and they're full of pride. Violence covers them like a garment. Do they use power to oppress people? They certainly do. Do they take advantage of people with their power and with their capability to do so? Absolutely. What did James say? What do these rich men do? These people who are regarded as being very great and successful in this world. Notice, for example, here in Micah 3, here's a very good example. You know, I talk about uh, the, uh, the, that class of politicians, which seems to be most of them, that uh, belong to the tax and spenders class. Notice here in Micah, Micah, the uh, third, uh, third chapter and verse number one. Hear now, O heads of Jacob, and you rulers of the house of Israel. Here's what your responsibility is. But have you lived up to it? Is it not for you to know justice? That's what you ought to be. You ought to be fair. You take a look at the whole political system today, and what is it based on? It's based on being obligated to the special interests. And when politicians get in office, that's how they get there, because that's where the money comes from. And then they have got to honor their obligations. And so their legislation, to a large extent, is based on what? Satisfying the special interest, not the best interest of the people. And how much justice is served in that? Is it not for you to know justice, you who hate good and love evil, who strip the skin from my people and the flesh from their bones, who also eat the flesh of my people, flay their skin from them, break their bones, and chop them in pieces like meat for the pot, like meat in the cauldron? This is what's happening, isn't it? So they use their power in whatever ways they can to achieve their ends. Their eyes bulge with abundance. Or the literal Hebrew is their faces bulge with abundance. Now, if you've ever seen somebody that's really fat, do their, not their faces bulge? You know, it's like uh, Jack Lane said one time, I had to agree with him 100%. He said, if you're overweight, you are exceeding your feed limit. And that's true. Absolutely true. But you see people, sometimes you look at them, they'll have great big hanging jowls, and they'll be way too fat for the for their frame 
And it's just typical of what happens. Now, these people, a lot of them are that way. Not all, of course, but, but a lot of them are. They have more than their heart could wish. That is, they get every wish. So here he's sitting, he's looking at these people, he's comparing himself with them. And they scoff and speak wickedly of oppression or concerning oppression. In other words, they speak as, uh, as though uh, that's just um, goes with the course. They don't care what people say or what people think. It's like, uh, I think it was J.P. Morgan said one time, one time. And if you'll pardon me for saying this, this, these were his words. He said, let the public be damned. He didn't care about the public. He didn't care how people were hurt. These big moguls who have gained uh, the big power brokers and the robber barons who looted, uh, looted society and looted people, what did they care? Later on, they tried to make up with it. A lot of them did. And they set up these uh, uh, endowments of one type or another. And I guess somehow they felt that would placate all the evil they did. But I can give you a good case. Andrew Carnegie. His hiring practices were atrocious. And he had men and young people out there working 10, 12, 14 hours a day for a pittance while he became filthy rich. And then later on in his life, we have the Carnegie Endowment giving it away. What happened to all the people that were hurt and ruined during his, his tenure in power? And yet people look to that and they think, oh, that's just wonderful, these great men. Well, you don't ever forget this text. Jesus said that which is highly esteemed among men is abomination in the sight of God. They scoff and speak wickedly concerning oppression. They speak loftily. They're haughty. They set their mouths against the heavens. They have no fear of God. As it says in Romans, there is no fear of God before their eyes. And their tongue walks through the earth. In other words, it doesn't have any limit. They can say and do about anything they want. And they're not going to have to answer for it. That is, presently. Proverbs 10, verse number 19. In the multitude of words, sin is not lacking. So when you see people that are just talking all the time and they just rattle on at the mouth endlessly, sin is going to be there. You can sin with your mouth. And that's what these people are doing. Therefore, his people return here. That is, uh, what this implies is that uh, the God's people are, are contemplating this and they just keep returning back to this, uh, this problem. They're trying to understand it. And waters of a full cup are drained by them. And that, that is their, their whole thinking, their faculties are just at a loss as to why this goes on. And this is exactly what this, this seer was experiencing. And they say, how does God know? That is, if he, that is, if he's omnipresent and omniscious, doesn't he know it? Doesn't he know what's going on? Why does he permit it? Is there knowledge in the Most High? It's very easy to think that way if you do not understand God's purpose. And that's what this psalm is pointing out and making plain what God's purpose really is and all of these things that go on in this world and why the, those who are righteous are the ones who seem to be suffering the most in this present life. These are the ungodly who are always at ease. They appear. I knew a family back home. The man was a very successful sheep rancher. 
had two or three ranches. I don't know how many head of sheep he had. And he got his start by gambling. But he was smart. He took the money he won from gambling. And I used to watch him gamble all the time. They allowed gambling in the hometown I grew up in. You'd see him there playing cards and gambling a good, good, good bit of the time. But he took the money that he won from gambling and he started investing it. And he was a very successful rancher. And had a son. And if you looked at his success and the, uh, the funds and, uh, and uh, the uh, uh, inheritance that he left that son, you would think well, there was a real success story. Well, I can tell you, this son went through those, those funds in, what, half a dozen, eight or ten years. Spent, spent himself broke. So what good was all that wealth? That's right, they appear to have to be at ease. They increase in riches. Surely, and here's what the prophet says, here's what the seer says, I have cleansed my hand, heart in vain. What good, in other words, has it been for me to try to be righteous and to try to live God's way when it doesn't net me anything? And wash my hands in innocence, that is, in purity. I kept myself clean and I kept myself pure and decent. But it didn't do anything for me. All day long I've been plagued and chastened every morning. That seems to happen to us, doesn't it? Let's go to Psalm 34, 19. Psalm 34, 19. As I read this a few minutes ago, as I quoted it a few minutes ago, it's right here in the Psalms, very plainly. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. So, as, as he said here, all day long I've been plagued and chastened every morning. And if I said, had said, I will speak thus, that is, if he would have just spoken what was on his mind and started speaking his doubts around and start saying the wrong things. Remember now, this was a very high-ranking, influential man within the kingdom of Israel. One of the uh, very important uh, um, writers and, and musicians and very instrumental in, uh, in his uh, role, the litur liturgical role within the temple. And if he would have been speaking out, if I would have just said what's on my mind, I would have been untrue to the generation of your children. That is to say, he could have caused others to doubt. He could have been responsible for setting up a stumbling block. That's why it is very careful. We, we guard our tongues, and we don't say the wrong things at the wrong time, and we don't say things that are going to discourage people. I had a minister that worked with me one time, very fine young man, and after that church started going into its tailspin back in the 70s, I was uh, forced out in 75, and I think he stayed, I don't know whatever happened to him since that time. But I heard he went up to and visited a family, and uh, he was talking to them, and the question came up, you know, about God intervening and helping them in matters, and he looked at them and he said, well, what if there is no God? Can you imagine that? I mean, they were just stunned that here was a supposed minister who had come to that point. So it does show you what can happen here. So... We have to be very careful what we say and to whom we say it 
And we don't always want to just let our thoughts ramble around all over the place. The libel will do a lot more harm than good, and this is what he recognized. When I thought to understand this, when I was trying to grasp what was going on here, and why the righteous were in such suffering and torment constantly, and suffering financial difficulties of one type or another, when I thought how to understand this, it was too painful for me. Until. Ah, now we're beginning to see the solution. Until what? Until I went into the sanctuary of God. In other words, now he began to realize that there was a relationship with God that was important. Now let's go back here to Deuteronomy 29 and notice something here. Deuteronomy 29 and verse number 29. The secret things belong to the Lord our God. But those things which are revealed belong to us and to our children forever that we may do all of the words of this law. Where was he going to get the insight into what God was doing? He got it when he made contact with God in the temple. It's an interesting statement made here in John, the 8th chapter. Let's notice it here in John 8, verse number 32. John 8, verse 32. You shall know the truth. And the truth shall make you free. If you understand the truth, then what he's saying here, if he understood what was going on. So now he's looking at all these people all along, and what does he conclude here? When he grasped what was going on, then I understood their end. That's rather interesting what this word end means. It means hereafter. I understood their hereafter. What's going to happen to them in the hereafter? You see, what goes on in this physical life is not all that important. And yet, to human beings who live on this earth, this is the only important thing. This physical life. And if this is our, if our whole uh, being is wrapped up in, in the physical things of this life, we're missing the whole purpose of life. Notice what Jesus said here, or actually John, uh, John the Baptist in uh, Matthew chapter 3 and verse number 11, because now he's talking about the hereafter. And what does he say here? John 3, verse number 11, I indeed baptize you with water under repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Now, what's he referring to? He's referring to the final lake of fire. So what John is actually prophesying here is the, the end, the fate, the hereafter of those who do not really obey God and refuse to obey him. I'm not talking about people who don't know knowledge of the truth. I'm talking about people who have had it and have rejected it. People who do not know the truth at this present time will be given that opportunity in their own due time. But for those of us who know it, it's another matter. Now he begins to see what's happening here. Surely you set them in slippery places. You cast them down to perfection. That is, to destruction. That is, 
On the Hebrew, you have two tenses. Really, in classical Hebrew, there's only two tenses, perfect and imperfect. Perfect means a completed action, and imperfect means an, in, an uncompleted action. In other words, it's something that's going on. So this is the imperfect. You are, perhaps it should be translated, you're casting them down to destruction. Not necessarily that we would notice now, but we will notice later. Oh, how they are they brought to desolation in a moment. Now stop and think what Jesus said. Let's go back here to Matthew, the, let's go forward here to Matthew, the seventh chapter. We're talking about slippery places. Matthew 7, verse number 26. Everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain descended, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. Slippery places. You may have remember video footage of news items where they were showing various floods occurring across the nation and in different parts of the world. And uh, there was one that was very, very, very vivid. You may remember this. Or this entire house, this huge house, was just floating down the river of flood, the floodwaters. A house that was built on a foundation that did not hold it. That's slippery places, isn't it? In other words, they do not have a foundation that's going to keep them firm and solid with God. Their foundation is faulty. And every single thing in this physical earth someday is going to vanish. And if one's foundation is predicated on that, it's faulty. It's slippery, and it is not going to last. How are they brought to desolation in a moment? Yeah, the, the rich who, who uh, attempt to achieve uh, great wealth. It's like uh, you'll find that people who have uh, accrued tremendous amount of wealth, they get to the place where wealth does not mean that much to them anymore. But the power that it gives them does. And that's what they become interested in. I had to laugh the other day. They had Ted Turner on the TV, and he was uh, complaining about his losses during this whole stock market drop thing. And he had lost, I think he had 10 or 12 billion when he started, and now he's down to 2 billion. Can you imagine that? He's just down to a paltry, measly 2 billion. And he was very unhappy about it. So it illustrates what happens to people when they become wealthy like that. So as we read here in 1st uh, Timothy 6 and verse number 17, command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty, nor to trust in uncertain riches. Oh, they are uncertain, all right. They are uncertain. What should they really trust in? But in the living God. So when they're in these slippery places, their destruction can be instant. They are utterly consumed with terrors. Now, are they going to be, is, are all of these people going to be consumed in terrors in this present life? Probably not, not by any means. But is there going to be a time ahead when they will be? Well, let's notice it here in Luke, the 16th chapter, in verse number 23. 
Here's the parable of Lazarus and the rich man. And we read here, he, that is the rich man, being in torments, in Hades, meaning the grave. He was now resurrected. And he's looking forward to what was going to happen. And he lifted his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. Lazarus was now in Abraham's bosom. That is, he was in a relationship with Abraham. He had made it into the kingdom of God. And he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. Yeah, is there going to be torment? Oh, it won't last very long, but it'll still be a very quick, painful death. And yet there are people who do not believe there's going to be a third resurrection. If there's not going to be a third resurrection, you know what that really means? That means that all the wicked can live this wicked way they have and die and never have to answer for it. That's contrary to what John taught and that's contrary to what Jesus taught. There is going to be a justice and a judgment and the Bible does preserve the wicked for the lake of fire. That's their torment. It'll be over very quickly, but it'll be certain. As a dream, now this is rather awkwardly translated here in uh, uh, a, a number of the commentators are not really certain what it means and we can only just make a guess I think probably what might be the best here and that is as a dream when awakening the word one as you'll see is in italics if it's in your King James Version and the word awakening here both awaken and awa awakes here in, in the, the first part of this verse and awake in the second the second awake in this same verse are infinitives in the Hebrew so probably it would be better to translate as a dream at awakening. So, Lord, when awakening, you shall despise their image or their vain show. Now, what is it likely to mean? Well, it's likely to mean is that they're living in the dream world. They're living, it's, it's rather interesting when you study uh, a lot about what the Greek philosophers taught and believed. They taught that this world was the unrealistic thing and the real, the, real, the real thing was the abstract that nobody could see. This was just an illusion. Well, they were only partially right. It's not an illusion. It's a real thing here, but it is not the real reality that's lasting. And in a sense, we're sort of living in a dream world. We're not really living in a dream world, but many people are. How many times have you heard people say, man, he's in a dream world? Why? They don't face reality. They don't look at the real thing. It's like Ayn Rand said one time. You can evade reality. Oh, yes, you can. But you cannot evade the consequences of evading reality. And that's absolutely true. So you see, they're in this dream world, and all of a sudden now they're going to wake up to reality, and what is happening? God is utterly going to disregard their, and the word to use image here probably should be vain show, their vain show, their whole pretense, their whole lifestyle, the way they live, the way they thought. It's a sad mistake to look at people like that or to look at that category 
of wealth and think that's success and that is pleasing to God. To choose that over God's favor. You know, here's what Jesus said in John 5, verse 29. Here's when the reality is going to hit. John 5, verse number 29. Verse 28, Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all that are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth. Those that have gone uh, done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. That's right. There is going to be a resurrection of condemnation. And so we see here, this is what's going to happen. Jesus said, you know, he prepared this fire for the devil and his angels. He said, you're going, in the same, you're going to the same place. Matthew 25, verse 41. So now, here's what this, uh, this seer, this inspired writer of this psalm says. Thus, my heart was grieved, and I was vexed in my mind. Mind is a much better word, though, the literal... Hebrew uses the word reins or kidney and it's symbolizing the seat of the emotion and the mind, you know, the, the, when you, you have an emotional feeling, where do you feel it? Your big toe? No, you feel it right here in your breast, don't you? Which is a sort of, a, it's a symbol of, the, of your reins or your mind. In other words, your mind is interpreting that emotion. You feel that emotion because your mind has interpreted a certain thing. I was as foolish and ignorant like a beast before you. That's how foolish and stupid he felt he was for feeling the way he did, for, for looking at these people and envying, and for thinking that that is the proper way to find success. I was foolish like a beast before you. And yet notice what he said, nevertheless I am continually with you. God didn't cast him off because of it. You know, you have to ask yourself this question. How much does God put up with us? Some of the things we think and do. And he doesn't cast us off. Why? Because he knows we are, we're human beings. We have this human nature. You hold me with your right hand. You continue to strengthen me and hold me. And now he's concluding what really is, is the truth of the matter. You will guide me with your counsel. And afterward, receive me to glory. That's right. Jesus described it here in Matthew 13, verse number 43. Notice what he said. He said, The righteous will shine forth as a sun in the kingdom of their Father. They'll have that glory. So he would guide him. And then notice what he begins to conclude here. He begins to see what the proper perspective is. Who have I in heaven but you? So what really counts? I'll tell you what counts. Your relationship with God and whether you have his favor. There is none upon earth that I desire besides you. That's the most important thing. My flesh and my heart fail. Now, it might be better to be translated. It is, it is in a process. I didn't check the particular usage of the tense there. But uh, I will point this out because we are, in a, we are all in a process of failing. That is, as far as the maintenance of this physical life. 
go back and look at some of your pictures when you were a young child or a teenager and then look at yourself now. What's happening to this physical body? You might be one of these very fortunate people who live many, many years, even some past 90. But that's probably not going to be most of us. Notice, for example, here what we read in uh, 2 Corinthians 4 and verse number 16. Therefore, we do not lose heart, even though our, art, our outward man is perishing. That's what's happening, isn't it? You think back, uh, sometimes I'm just almost shocked, and uh, I'm really surprised that uh, some of them are willing to do it, but a lot of you, of a lot of you are too young, you wouldn't remember this, but uh, you old-timers, you will remember Betty Davis quite well, won't you? Very attractive movie star. Well, she appeared on TV the other day, and I saw her. I couldn't believe my eyes. I mean, she was an elderly lady. I think she's in her 80s by now, and she was just uh, shriveled up. And I mean, you wouldn't even recognize her. Yeah, this outward body is perishing. Yes, as he says here. Yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. That's what counts. So as he says here, my heart and my flesh fail. That is, they're in the process of failing. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. That's what he's looking forward to. He's looking forward to eternity. He's looking forward to the hereafter. Not like these people in the world who have no perspective whatsoever about what's going, what the future is going to bring. You know what they have their hope in? They have the hope in that they're an immortal soul. And when they die, their immortal soul will continue to live on. And somehow, all they have to do in the course of this human experience, somewhere along the line, they just simply say, I accept Jesus Christ, I believe in him, and they're saved. Just like that. That's, I tell you, that is one of the biggest lies that Satan has ever promulgated onto an unsuspecting humanity. And it isn't going to be that easy. Now, most of those people that I'm mentioning that are in that category have never been called to the knowledge of the truth. They don't even know at the present time. But as I pointed out, they will have that opportunity in the future. But you see, there's a lot more than just professing. It's a character-building process that goes on for a lifetime. So as we read here, Indeed, those who are far from you shall perish. That is, if they stay that way, and here's what the sad part is. People who turn from God never think they're doing it, in most cases. The vast majority of them. They will come up with ideas of human reasoning. They'll reject scriptures that are plain and they'll put their own interpretation on them and decide they're going to just do what they want to do. And they don't care what the Bible says. Yet somehow they're pleasing God. Indeed, those who are far from you shall perish. You have destroyed all those who desert you for harlotry. That is, in this particular case, turning to false gods and false religions. And there's an interesting text here in the book of Zephaniah. Let's, uh, <coughs> let's read it here in uh, Zephaniah. It's the first chapter. 
right after Habakkuk, Habakkuk, verse 2, I will utterly consume everything from the face of the land, says the Lord. I will consume man and beast. I will consume the birds of heaven, the fish of the sea, and the stumbling blocks along with the wicked. I will cut off man from the face of the land, says the Lord. Now who's included in this? Verse 5. Those who worship the host of heaven on the housetops, those who worship and swear oaths by the Lord, but also swear by Milcom. You know, they want to mix their religion. They want to try to worship God, and they want to try to uh, to, to uh, worship some form of idolatry or something that's contrary to God and mingle the two of them together. Those who also swear by Milcom, those who have turned back from following the Lord. Do people turn back? You bet they do. They don't think they are, though, most of them. And then... Those who have not sought the Lord nor inquired of Him. They have no interest in God and they don't care. They don't want to know. They live for the physical amenities of this life and that's the only thing they live for. They have no foresight. And they're not able to grasp what the future is, what the hereafter is going to bring. But it is good for me, that is the chief good that he can experience and he experienced is to draw near to God. Yeah, that's when he understood what it was all about, when he went into the sanctuary. That is, when he established this relationship with God. I have put my trust in the Lord God. That's the only place to put it. That I may declare all your works. Now he could articulate what he had learned. And the lesson could be written down as an inspired song, inspired psalm. And thus we have it today, the 73rd Psalm which is one of the most outstanding psalms in helping us to realize the importance of having favor with God rather than the prosperity of this world that in many, many cases is gained deceptively, wrongly, lustfully, and as a result of coveting.